Good morning. Am I the only one that was really encouraged by Jonathan's exhortation this morning? I mean, besides his voice being very pleasant, not like my own, it's really hard to follow what he said. I was very convicted and uh, encouraged by what he, what you said this morning, brother. And very often in God's providence, when someone gets up to speak before I preach, they say exactly what I plan to say. So um, I should just say amen and sit down. But, um, but Paul is going to be in, in Ephesus, so it kind of makes sense uh, to apply to what you said, brother. So as you can see, two books, twice as long. Okay, that joke is getting really old. Thank you. If you don't know me, my name is Mike Negley, and I'm one of the elders here at Levittown Baptist Church, and I'm very eager to bring you a message from God's Word this morning. But before I do, I'm going to tell you a story. In the fall of 1996, I gathered my books, my occult books, including the Satanic Bible, and along with my spell books, books on candle magic and Wicca, and also my talisman, my charms, my runes, my amulets, and my pentacles. Not my tentacles, but my pentacles. And you'll see a picture of one in a moment. I had myself a good old-fashioned book burning in my parents' backyard in Mineola. You see, I had been born again a couple months earlier that spring, and now at the ripe old age of 22, and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and after reading Acts 19, verses 18 and 19, I decided it was time to clean out my library. Luke writes in Acts 19, verses 18 and 19, Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So by God's grace, I decided to make a clean break from my pagan past. Yes, I'll admit being an Italian boy from Long Island, I had been raised Roman Catholic. But by the time I was in my teens, I had an unhealthy obsession with the dark arts. In fact, some of the Roman Catholic saint and angel worship was a perfect segue into pagan ritual. Former Roman Catholics here today, have you ever prayed the rosary? Have you ever done the nine-day novena for the dead? Yes, it's a perfect segue into paganism, but that's another story. So I grew into an eclectic dabbler, a little bit of this over here, a little bit of that over there, and along with the aid of various legal and illegal substances, I entered the spiritual graveyard that is the New Age. Does anyone know what this is? Yeah. Anyone that know me know where this picture is taken? No, it's my back shoulder. And that's on my right shoulder to this day. Please take it down. <laughs> but after the faithful witness of two obedient saints of the Lord, one at my job, the other at school, and after two years of not budging an inch, all of a sudden I was converted to Christ. In a sovereign snap, I was saved. I was instantly transformed from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so a few months later, I had myself a small bonfire. I'm not telling you to do it, but I did in my parents' backyard about 27 years ago. So I took what the Ephesian converts did 2,000 years ago and followed their example. I burned my items alone, but I wanted to make a statement that my old life was gone. And behold, all things were made new. I was a new creation in Christ. Now, to be clear, the statement, the biblical ordinance that Christ mandates to signify death to sin and new life in Christ is baptism. It's not burning stuff. And I was publicly baptized. 
But this other thing I did was for myself and was one of the final nails in the coffin of my old life. So now fast forward to this year, 2023, when the preaching schedule was made and I was given today's text, which isn't the Ephesian book burning. I had missed it by one week. I'll admit I was a bit disappointed because last week's sermon, which Caleb preached excellently, all glory be to God, was almost like an autobiography of my life. And after this introduction, you now know why. But then I remember what occurs in the text next, I mean, my text for this morning, Demetrius the silversmith, the riot, and the temple of Artemis, also known as Diana. If any of you have a King James or New King James Bible, it'll say Diana instead of Artemis. And then I was satisfied once more, because in addition to being interested in the occult and witchcraft, I also worshipped and prayed to the moon and to its goddess, Diana. Please take that down and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We make light of a lot of things, but this is a very serious subject. I pray, oh God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and you'd give me the words to speak to encourage your people, to convict and encourage by the power of your Holy Spirit, and it's all according to the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Today, Lord willing, we'll finish out Acts chapter 19, so please turn into your Bibles to Acts 19 and read along silently as I read aloud verses 21 to 41, and if you're able, please rise for the reading of his word. Verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying... After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And she may even be deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper 
of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. So as we examine this passage, please note, I am going to divide it into three sections. Section number one is Paul's spirit-inspired plan, verses 21 to 22. Section two is pagans' mostly peaceful protest, verses 23 to 34. And section three is the politicians' wise and crafty persuasion, verses 35 to 41. So now let's dive into section one, Paul's spirit-inspired plan. We just read verses 21 and 22, which said, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in our rush to get to the exciting stuff, the memorable events that are going to take place, we must care not to step over these first two verses because they're important. So look at the text in your Bible. It says, now after these events. Now, what events is he speaking about? Well, the events that occurred in verses 11 to 20 from last week. Paul's miracles covered by Caleb last Sunday. The fact that handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had merely touched were miraculously imbued with hearing power. That when applied to the sick would heal them, and when applied to demon-possessed people would exercise them. These extraordinary events, as Caleb put it last week, were simply not ordinary. Thank you for that. And furthermore, they do not occur today. So please don't send any seed money to any televangelist or telefraudulists that may ask for it. These miracles here in Acts 19 did occur, and they served to authenticate Paul's gospel message. As, as was also the case with Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus Christ himself. And so we see that people didn't have, that didn't have Paul's message or the office of apostle did not have this ability. Just ask the seven sons of Sceva what happened to them last week. And what was the result of Paul's bold preaching in Ephesus? It was that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And as a result of his miracles, fear came upon the Ephesians, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Now this caused the converted pagans to confess their pagan practices, like we said before, and like I did almost 30 years ago. And those that practiced the magic arts, not pen and teller, but actual magic arts, they repented of their dark deeds, and as a sign of their repentance, as fruit in keeping with repentance, they burned their books in the sight of all. And as we discovered last week, these books were not cheap. They were worth a lot of money. So these Ephesian converts willingly gave up any money they could have made by selling them on eBay, Amazon Market, or even in Heidi's closet. 
They destroyed them and didn't look back. God was moving powerfully in Asia. And it's only after these events that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and then to make a circle through Achaia and then on to Jerusalem. And for Jerusalem, we're going to find out next week, Lord willing, that he's probably giving gifts of relief to Jerusalem that he raised in the churches around Asia. So that's why he wanted to go there. But then finally he says, I must also see Rome. Now the wording of, for I must also see Rome in the Greek presents the idea of Paul being driven to go to Rome, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul was steadfast in his purpose, and this is very similar to the language used when it says in Luke 9.53 that the Lord Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, where he would knowingly be betrayed, arrested, condemned, beaten, crucified for the sins of his people, and praise God for that. But here in Acts 19, we see that Paul is driven Now, some commentators say in his spirit, like in his heart, and some say by the spirit to go to Rome. But why did he want to go there in the first place? Well, what was Rome? It was the hub of the most powerful empire in the known world at that time. The perfect spot for the gospel to first reach and then to go forth to spread through the empire's territory, which, thank God, is exactly what happened. Now, those of you who know a little early church history, or not to mention the rest of the book of Acts, realize that Paul did get to Rome, but how he gets there eventually probably wasn't how he had in mind. He went in chains, his arrests, his imprisonment, his trials, his house arrest, more persecution, conviction, and eventual execution. Now, church tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded in Rome. Well, be that as it may, He was resolved in Acts 19 to see Rome, and he, by God's providence, eventually did. So, he sends Timothy and Erastus ahead of him while he stays behind. And that was a short section, but that concludes section one, Paul's spirit-inspired resolution. Now we have the setting, now we have the context, now we have the backdrop to the big events in the following verses. We see, remember, the gospel is exploding in Ephesus and around Asia Minor. Miracles are occurring. People are being healed. People are having demons cast out of them. And most importantly, people are being saved. The fruit of Paul labors is astounding. So as we come to verses 23 to 34, section 2, we're going to discover pagans mostly peaceful protest. Pagans mostly peaceful protest. Look in your Bibles at verse 23. Luke writes, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, the way. The way was a term for Christianity first used back in Acts 9, when Luke tells us that Paul was persecuting the believers before his conversion. So that's what the way is. And then in verse 34, he says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, okay, hang on, this man, Demetrius, of whom the text says was a silversmith, had part of, if not most of his labor, his stock in trade, in making these silver shrines to Artemis. So whatever a silver shrine is and whomever Artemis was, Demetrius made big bucks from fashioning these things. Verse 24 says that no little business was made, which means big business was made. So Demetrius calls together a meeting, basically a silversmith union meeting, bringing together the workmen, the craftsmen, the artisans, all people who profited from making these shrines to Artemis, 
and he makes them aware of the problem that Paul and his message regarding Jesus was causing them. Now, before moving on, let's briefly investigate what a shrine is and just who Artemis was or who she was supposed to be. Now, a shrine was a religious location or an icon dedicated in worship of a god or goddess. It could contain relics such as bones of a holy person. It could contain a religious object. It could be a building or an altar dedicated to a deity. It could be, as in our case, a portable mini-representation of the actual real-life shrine in Ephesus. Now, before moving on to Artemis, please hear me when I tell you that there are no Christian shrines. There are no Christian shrines. Regardless of what you've seen or heard, especially if you come from a Roman Catholic background, I remember last week Caleb asked for a show of hands. Can I have a show of hands again of people that were brought up Roman Catholic? Just about everyone. So you must be familiar with the shrine of Saint so-and-so or the Saint whoever whatever shrine. If you go on your phone and Google shrine, you'll find shrines around the island. And if you've ever been to Rome, like I have, you've seen people still making pilgrimages to see supposed bones of Peter and Paul or bits of the cross itself. So shrines are supposed to contain holy relics. But that's a problem. So again, let me say before we move on that there are no Christian shrines because Christians do not worship or venerate objects. Even if we could find a piece of Jesus' cross or even a cup of his shed blood, we would not and should not bow down to it or worship it. Amen? Because we don't worship a God made of wood or stone or silver. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But as we're amening, it is in our hearts to commit idolatry. It really is. And it's something that even the most sanctified saints need to fight against daily. Because an idol doesn't have to be a little silver shrine. The idols come from our hearts. It could be loads of things, even good things. But back to, to Ephesus. The shrine in question, the issue that Demetrius the silversmith brings up is the temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. This is, a, this is not it. This is a recreation of it, a model. But this is what it would have looked like. And this thing was enormous. It was twice the size of the Parthenon in Greece. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, who exactly this deity was is difficult to pinpoint. I'm going to have a picture of uh, Artemis up there as well. Uh, isn't she lovely? All right, take it, take it down. Now, the, if, the Artemis of the Ephesians was a conglomerate. She was a mixture of different goddesses around the world at that time. We have the classical Greek goddess, who was supposed to be the twin sister of Apollo, the daughter of Zeus. We have the Roman goddess Diana, and the Anatolian mother goddess Sibeli. So all these three of these goddesses were missed and mashed together to encounter the goddess we see in Ephesus. And she was the mother goddess of fertility, the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of the moon, the goddess of wild animals. So differing and contradictory representation, which is most often the case, of this goddess were scattered throughout the pagan world during Paul's day. Nevertheless, the Ephesians were proud of the fact that they were the guardians of her temple that was located near their city. In addition to the stone statue made of cedar wood depicted Artemis, the temple contained a sacred stone which supposedly fell from heaven. If so, it was probably a meteorite which resembled a woman's face, sort of like the French toast that looks like the Virgin Mary or the potato that looks like Elvis. But more on that later because the text itself explains what this stone was about. 
So the temple that we saw a minute ago was tremendous. Again, twice the size of the Parthenon, and it was one of the seven wonders of the world. People flocked from all over the world to see it, and that is why Demetrius was so nervous. When people travel, when you go to some place and you visit a historic site, where do you always stop on the way out? The gift shop. They make it so you can't leave without going to, you ever see that? Going to the gift shop. And who do you think made the trinkets that were sold in the temple gift shop? Demetrius the silversmith, exactly. And so this, this Demetrius was clearly worried about the situation. So he calls an impromptu union meeting, which we'll refer to as the Shriners Convention. So let's, you get it? so let's read on in verses 25 to 27. It says, These he, Demetrius, gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so, if you are following along, Demetrius has two main arguments to the Shriners Convention. Number one, he's saying Paul is hurting our business. And number two, he says Paul is hurting our goddess. Argument number one, he says we make our living by making these portable shrines to sell to the tourists. Now some of us provide the silver, some of us melt the silver, some of us mold and shape the silver, fashioning it into these shrines. But these things, these shrines may no longer be in demand thanks to this man Paul. Because he claims that since we make the gods, they are not actually true gods. And this troublemaker has persuaded a great many of our potential customers. He needs to be stopped so that we can get back to business as usual. So that was his first argument. Argument number two is that Paul was hurting Artemis. The actual temple itself, the temple of the great goddess may be considered worthless, could be considered garbage. And this world-famous female deity may be deposed from her magnificence. He says, guys, we're really doing this for her. It's a noble purpose. Yes, we make a living, but it's really in honor of our goddess. We need to defend her honor before it's too late. Now, as an aside, we may notice that Demetrius probably doesn't care anything about Artemis. He's worried about his bank account. Bible commentators point out the particular order of his two arguments. Number one is business. Number two is religion. I mean, if he really believed what he said he believed, the order should be reversed, right? I mean, faith first, and then our financial stability second. Concern for his God is first, and then for his own well-being, which is what we need to be concerned with when we serve the one true and living God, amen? God first, then our brothers and sisters, then our family, then our neighbors, then lastly, ourselves. So even in this false pagan religion, we see Demetrius's jumbled priorities, but we're going to have more on that point at the close of our message. So moving on, Demetrius tries both these tactics with the silversmiths and craftsmen. And then in verses 28 and 29, we see the result. Verse 28 says, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who are Paul's companions in travel. 
So the Shriners Convention turned into an angry mob. And they rushed together into the theater. And along the way, they grabbed two of Paul's friends. And they dragged them with them into the theater. So our mostly peaceful protests turned violent. And here is the theater as it stands today. I mean, it's still there. And if you look at it, it sat over 25,000 people. So this is the place where they dragged these men in. And this theater was used for entertainment, for religious festivals, as well as public meetings. So in a sense, the mob went to the right place, but not at the appropriate time or in the appropriate manner. Now, for the first time since all this excitement began, the Apostle Paul makes an appearance. However, his words are not recorded for us here. Verse 30 and 31 just tell us that when Paul discovered that his friends were in danger, he wished to go in among the crowd. And this is extremely telling. Because in his desire, we see Paul's heart. He wants to go into the fire. He wants to make a defense of the gospel, and he wants to help his friends. You see, Paul was no stranger to suffering for the gospel. The once great persecutor of the church became one of the most persecuted members of the church, and as eventually he became a martyr for Christ. But Paul wanted to go in. But then we see his friends, the disciples, fellow believers, as well as the Asiarchs, who were probably some high-ranking Asian officials of some kind, they would not allow it because they knew what would happen to him if he tried to go in and talk to this mob. And what was Paul's response to them? He humbly obeys them. Now, knowing Paul's history and his willingness to suffer for Jesus, we can pretty much be sure that not going in was not an act of cowardice on his part. It was humility on his part. After all, being an apostle through whom many souls were saved, miracles and healings and exorcisms were performed, after all, he was not a go-it-alone type of guy. He wasn't a know-it-all. And for that point, we are very thankful because if you remember, he was resolved to see Rome. So he needed to be afforded that opportunity. And we will also revisit Paul's example in a little bit in our points of application. So he wanted to go in, his heart was to go in, but his friends persuaded him not to go in. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Here we see typical mob mentality on full display. Luke definitely uses sarcasm here. I mean, he can't help it. He mentions that they were all screaming, but didn't know the heck why they were screaming, didn't even know why they were there. But they were there, and they were enraged. Whatever it is, we don't like it. Now, this is something also that we're going to revisit. We're going to revisit all these stories at the end for our application. So keep these points in mind. They were enraged, but they didn't know why they were there. So continuing in verses 33 to 34, Luke writes, Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So rather than settling down, we have the heat turned up a little more by this man, Alexander. Not that that was his intention. I mean, it may have been. I mean, he was a Jew, and apparently he was part of the crowd and was put forward by others in the crowd who were Jews in order to speak. But when they saw he was Jewish, they shouted him down for two hours. I mean, I get tired of singing when Henry adds another chorus. I mean, I, you know, imagine two hours of screaming. <laughs> but seriously, they would not allow this man to speak. And whether he was going to come to Paul's aid or not, the result was the same. 
he couldn't get in one single word. And this mindless aggression is always a sign of a failed argument. Think about this. If their side cannot be publicly defended, then what else is there to do than to shout the other side down? We see it all over. We see it all over. And more on that later. So in quick review, we have seen section one, Paul's spirit-inspired plan. Section two, pagans' mostly peaceful protest. And now we move on to our final section, section three, politicians' wise and crafty persuasion. So it starts in verse 35, and it leads to the end of the chapter. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Finally, we have some sanity. This town clerk, who was sort of a mayor, he wasn't just like a, a record keeper, he was a mayor, he may have been a liaison between Ephesus and Rome. He had, at the very least, the authority to quiet the crowd, number one, and number two, to call a regular meeting, like the regular assembly. So he had some authority here. And this man was able to quiet the crowd, unlike Alexander, and as a true politician, was able to smooth things over very quickly. In his wise and crafty speech, he first reassures the people that everyone knows that Ephesus boasts the largest temple to Artemis in the world, and then he further perpetuates the myth that the meteorite that fell from the sky is indeed a sacred stone. And then don't fail to notice the loophole that he opens for Artemis. If you look closely, he sees it. He says something like, if the sacred stone fell from the sky and is supposed to represent the goddess, then in this case, it is not a god made by hands. It came down from Zeus himself. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. Do you see the subtle slickness of this phony's words? He says, look, okay, maybe gods made with hands are not gods, but this fell from the sky, so it doesn't even matter here. So even if Paul did claim this, it doesn't apply to us. There's a way out. The stone fell from Jupiter, so by extension, these portable shrines that you're making just represent the true goddess. No harm, no foul. No worries. Then he changes his tactics goes completely the other way and threatens them. He says, you see, because you knuckleheads grabbed these other two men and dragged them here, who along with Paul weren't sacrilegious, which means they didn't rob temples. They didn't blaspheme against the goddess, but I think that's debatable because Paul definitely preached against the gods and goddesses. But he says they didn't blaspheme the goddess. Nevertheless, the town clerk warns the crowd that this time, now they're really in danger. And the word danger was used earlier. That's the word that Demetrius used when he said that because of Paul's preaching, that their jobs and Artemis's reputation were in danger. But this danger that the town clerk mentions of getting in trouble with Rome was actual. This could really happen and would come if they all didn't settle down. So if things in Ephesus continued to get out of hand, Rome would cha charge them with rioting, and then they really were in big trouble. So then finally, he concludes with a legal argument, 
that the Ephesian mob had no cause that they could give to justify the commotion. So he says, therefore, just simmer down and go home. And here we witness a master orator in action. First, he says, calm down. He says, the first approach says, nothing Paul can do or say can make any difference. The truth about Artemis is real and her temple and the sacred stone wasn't made by hands. Just calm down. And then he says, be afraid. Be afraid because if you don't calm down, Rome is going to come in and make you stop. So he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth, but he gets the job done. And believe it or not, brothers and sisters, we're going to come back to his example at the end as a positive example. But just, just hear me out. So in closing, and before we get to our application, I'm going to quickly review. We know that in Ephesus, Paul preached the gospel. People got saved. People got healed. People repented of their paganism and at the expense of their money and their lifestyle and their jobs. And this turn of events is bad for the shrine-making business. Demetrius calls an emergency union meeting. A mob ensues. They grab Paul's friends. Paul wants to go in and help, but he's wisely counseled not to. The Jews pour forth Alexander, who is promptly shouted down. The town clerk has seen enough. He quiets the crowd by buttering them up, settling their concerns, and then threatening them with the Roman Empire. And then everyone goes home. And before we get to go home, let's look at our application points this morning. I have eight of them. And points one to four of application will be straightforward truths from the text with encouragements and admonishments to follow. And then points five to eight will be taken from characters in today's text and whether or not to follow their examples. So here they are in order, and then we'll go through each one quickly. Application point number one, the gospel can be bad for business. Application point number two, the gospel may be hazardous to your health. Application point number three, the gospel is opposed by Satan. Application point number four, the gospel will not be stopped. And now the next four are examples. Application number five, the silversmith's bad example. Number six, the crowd's bad example. Number seven, the apostle's good example. And number eight, the town clerk's good example. So we have four points to remember and four examples to imitate or not to imitate. Let's go to point number one. The gospel can be bad for business. Now we saw in Acts 19 that true conversion to Christ always has real life consequences. In addition to obtaining eternal life, which is the best thing that could ever happen, there are real life consequences. For instance, a person who has been truly born again will show that fruit in the new birth. One obvious change in the text preached on last week was the burning of the books that we mentioned today. These people who possibly made a living by these practices now needed to find a new job. They packed up, left Hogwarts, and went out to find a new career path in the muggle world. If you don't get that, good for you. You're more sanctified than the rest of us. And, and, and Jonathan so eloquently put it before about your career and your career choices. In today's text, the conversion of the former worshipers of Artemis into present worshipers of Christ made their purchases of silver shrines rather unlikely concerning the circumstances. They weren't going to go and buy shrines anymore. And this was bad business for Demetrius. So Christian, as Jonathan said before, maybe you need a career change. If in fact you make your money by not so reputable means, you may need to pursue a new line of work. Or if it's not your business that's in question, but someone else's business that you keep in business, perhaps you should rethink your shopping preferences. 
personally, uh, I was, I'm a musician, so I was playing in bands since I was a teenager, and I continued to play in bars in New York City into years after I was a Christian. And then I began to be convicted because I was performing in a bar, people were getting drunk, and I'm entertaining them when they're sinning. So I was convicted for the first time in, since I was 14, I stopped playing music for money. Not that you can't do that, but I was convicted to stop doing that. So that was bad business for me, and now I'm a teacher of the public school system, but I'm a light there. Be that as it may, once Christ lives in you, it's never going to be business as usual. So application point number one is the gospel can be bad for business. Point number two, the gospel may be hazardous to your health, to your physical health, just to clarify. Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And later he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And today's text shows the physical danger that Gaius and Aristarchus were in just due to their association to Paul and the gospel. Christians, do not be surprised if standing up for the gospel puts you directly in harm's way. But take rest in this. Even if you are harmed by the world, Jesus will bear you up. Even if it's unto death, he will bear you up forevermore. So number two, the gospel may be hazardous to your health. Application point number three, the gospel is opposed by Satan. In today's text, the devil used Demetrius to attempt to stop the advancement of the gospel. See, Paul's message caused a loss in demand for the silver shrines, so he, the devil, raged against Paul. You see, Satan didn't care that the temple and the shrines were dedicated to Artemis and not to him. See, any worship or anything but the one true and living God is for Satan. Anything else is for Satan. Even self-worship, which is the most prevalent thing in our so-called secular society today, it's actually devil worship in disguise. So Satan used Demetrius in Acts 19 to oppose the gospel, just as he used the apostle Peter in Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Remember this story? It says in verse 21, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The gospel is opposed by Satan. Application point number four. The gospel will not be stopped. The gospel will not be stopped. Before the devil used Peter to try and prevent Jesus from going to the cross and paying for the sin of the world, Peter rightly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to this, the Lord said, Upon this rock, upon the gospel message, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What will the gates of hell not prevail against? The church. What does the church have? The gospel. What does the church do with the gospel? Well, first we believe it. That's most important. And then we spread it to the world. The advancement of the gospel through the witness of the church cannot and will not be stopped. Not by the world, not by our flesh, and not by the devil. Please rest in that today. Rest in the gospel can never be stopped. And now on to our four examples. 
Application point number five, example number one, is the silversmith's bad example. Now, this is an odd one, and I'm going to say that right at the outset, but please hear me out and make your own conclusion. If we look at Demetrius's concerns that we mentioned before over the gospel, there were two. The first one was his livelihood. The second one was Artemis' reputation. Now, the order of this is very important. It's the problem. If we just let the man himself speak in the text, we see that his first concern was his wallet with his business, with his trade, with himself. It's only after voicing that concern does he mention Artemis. False God, though she is, if Demetrius was a true believer in her, so to speak, then he, she should have been his first priority. Now, to be clear, Artemis, Diana, Thor, they're not real gods. There is only one true God, and Yahweh is his name. Even so, Demetrius' speech betrays the fact that he was most concerned with his standard of living and not his God. Now we, let's bring this to our lives, we who through Jesus Christ know the true God, the triune God, cannot let the same be said of us. Our Jesus and his gospel must be of first importance. As I said a bit ago in application point one, the gospel can be bad for business, bad for our business, but good for our souls. So, application point five, do not follow the silversmith's bad example. Put God first. Point number six, the crowd's bad example. What did the people do when they gathered and listened to Demetrius' speech? They were enraged. They grabbed Paul's two friends. They rushed into the amphitheater. They screamed for over two hours. They would not listen to reason. That's called a mob mentality. Christians, avoid a mob mentality. For some reason, well, for sin is the reason, but for some reason, when humans gather together in large groups, they can be made to act and behave in ways that they would not normally behave when they're not in that large group. Large numbers of people can incite each other to do really foolish things. It's all over the news. And what did the crowd do when Alexander the Jew got up to speak? They shouted him down. Regardless of whether or not he would, he was going to, they were going to agree with him or not, they didn't have the chance to hear him because they shouted him down. They shouted him down. They would not allow him to speak. They were not open to debate. They acted foolishly. Let's make this personal. Brothers and sisters, we cannot behave in this way. We're very capable. Don't laugh at them. We can do the same thing. We can behave in the same manner as the Ephesian mob did. But we should not. We cannot play their game. We cannot use as a defense. They do it too. And we cannot take part in cancel culture by not allowing our adversaries to speak. Christian, you can allow a opposing view to be heard. You can listen to it. But then you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. If what they're saying is not true, combat it with the truth, but give them a chance. Don't shout them down. People that are afraid to let others voice their positions are people that know in their heart that, that they cannot defend their own position. Don't be afraid, but be ready to answer and answer correctly. Now let me add one more quick thought before moving on. We talked about mob mentality and shouting down, but Christians also cannot incite violence for a good cause. Okay? We cannot incite violence for a good cause. If someone doesn't want to take my gospel track, I shouldn't punch them in the face. And when I speak about violence, I'm not speaking about serving in the military or fighting for your country or speaking about defending your family. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the mob mentality. I'm talking about shouting people down, and if these people are, are, are hurting the gospel, we need to go pummel them. Don't follow mob mentality. 
do not follow the crowd's bad example. Okay, enough of bad stuff. Let's move on to two good examples. Okay, point number seven is the apostle Paul's good example. This is a no-brainer. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Here is a place where we can imitate Paul. Now, this passage is unique, and if you notice, Paul doesn't speak or teach or preach in this section. He's there, but he's not a main character. But we do see in verse 30, when Paul saw the trouble brewing, his first thought was to go into the theater to help. His concern was most likely twofold. Number one, of course, to make a defense for the gospel, and number two, to help his friends. But here, as previously mentioned, we see Paul's heart on full display. He's willing to risk his life for the gospel and for his companions. And number two, we saw Paul's humility on display. He listened to wise counsel. He didn't see himself as Superman who needed to come in and save the day. He knew he wasn't the only one who could save the day. He was humble. He listened to advice. Although he was the greatest missionary that ever lived, he was humble. We need to be humble like Paul was. We need to listen to wise counsel and not do anything rash. So follow the apostles' good example. That was easy. And finally today, application point number eight, follow the town clerk's, clerk's good example. Now just hear me out on this one, okay? Just like I cautioned you regarding Demetrius' bad example, I'm asking you to hear me out regarding the town clerk. Now, the town clerk had wisdom in as much as if the myth of Artemis were true, then nothing, nothing could be done to make it untrue. Following my line of reasoning, if the town clerk's faith were true, then nothing could be said or done by Paul to diminish the dutiful worship of his God. Remember, he said things like, who in the world does not know that her temple is here and everyone worships her, etc.? See, the same sentiment was spoken by the Jewish leader Gamaliel back in Acts 5, verses 35 to 39. Remember when the Pharisees were getting worried about the new sect called Christianity? And it says this, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men, the apostles. For before these days, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And it's similar, this man, Gamaliel, was speaking about the true God. There's no doubt about that, not some imitation goddess. But both the Jewish leader and the pagan town clerk agree on one point, and that's the point that I want you to see this morning. Their faith in their deity gave them peace when facing obstacles in their life. Yes, the town clerk believed in a false goddess. I can't say that enough. It was a false goddess. However, his apparent trust in her, though misplaced, shames many of us today who fret and worry about every little thing. So if a pagan can say, oh, she's still going to be worshipped, don't worry about it, don't get in trouble, then those of us who know the real God, the true God, the God who lives, the creator of all things, should rest in him and not do anything rash. I promised before, the Bible promised, that if God is behind something, it cannot fail. Because he cannot fail. And concerning the gospel, although Satan is opposing it present day, it will nevertheless achieve everything he set it out to do. He will save every member of the elect. He will not rest until everyone is saved and brought into the fold. And that's a fact. 
So if you or I miserably fail in our witness or in our evangelism, even still, God's will will be established. Because Jesus taught so in John 6, 37, where he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So no need to panic. Don't do anything rash. Just be still and know that Yahweh is God. So application eight is follow the town clerk's good example. So in conclusion, rounding it all up, here I was back in the fall of 1996. I was saved for a couple of months, and I was convicted regarding my previous occultic practices. I knew I was forgiven in Jesus, and that happened, and that was it. That was done. But I was led to show my faith, or rather to make a visible break from my past. So I burned my satanic Bible, my spell books, talisman, charms, runes, amulets, pentacles. Not tentacles, but pentacles. I stopped praying to the moon. I stopped praying to the goddess of the moon, Diana. And there's a, there's a side-by-side comparison. I mean, it was, it was one on the left, not that it makes it better. But I stopped praying to the false god. A false god is a false god is a false god. doesn't matter what you think they look like because they don't exist. But you see, when my heart of stone was replaced by a heart of flesh... I traded in my ignorant worship of a false goddess, which is really worship of self and Satan, for a relationship with the one true and living God, Yahweh, who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, the God-shaped vacuum in my heart that I previously filled with the occult, paganism, alcohol, drugs, immorality, and even my music was now occupied by Jesus Christ, the lover of my soul. The Holy Spirit sealed me unto the day of redemption. And God, the Father's wrath, was satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for my behalf. The Father sending his only begotten Son to the earth to live a perfect life that you or I could never live. Yet giving that life up for sinners like you and me. But after paying for our sins fully and dying, three days later he rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit and he ascended back into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession and praying for his people. And he will come again, this time to judge the world. And no one, none will be able to endure the wrath of the Lamb who is Jesus Christ. So do not wait until it's too late. While there's still time, while it's still called today, I implore you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, run to Christ. Trust in his perfect sacrifice. Confess your sins. Repent of them. Acknowledge that you cannot save yourself. Even if you try really hard, can't do it. Believe in him who is able to save you completely. And his promise is that he will never cast you out if you come to him in faith. And the one believing in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Then I'll invite you over to my house. I have plenty of matches. We can burn some stuff in my backyard. I live in Suffolk. Everyone burns stuff in their yards. With the fireworks. But seriously, we'll come together and we'll pray for two hours. Great is Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your message. We thank you for your truth found in your word. We thank you that your son came, lived and died on the behalf of sinners. We thank you that your Holy Spirit teaches us to understand your word and gives us the grace to apply your word. I pray, oh God, if anything today that was said that was not in line with your word and your truth, that the people will quickly forget it. I pray, oh God, that if anything did come uh, from you and is truth from your word accurately taught, that you would give us the ability to hear it and then to act on it. I pray, oh God, that you would give us a fuller view of your son Jesus, that you would allow us to see him as he is, that you allow us to worship him in faith and truth. I pray, oh God, that you would uh, encourage us as we make tiny steps 
uh, toward becoming in the likeness of Jesus. We know that you will accomplish your purposes. You always do and you always will. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.